At Giant Eagle, you may have spotted the Stacker. With uncanny MyPerks ability, she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20% off her entire grocery bill. The Stacker, stacking up huge savings with MyPerks. Find your MyPersonality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries. Full details at GiantEagle.com slash MyPerks. Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network, although we're not that anymore, but hey, whatever, this is kind of a relaxed show tonight. This is episode 249, and can you believe it since, well, let's be fair, I mean, Mark, since you and I partnered up uh, at the end of last year, I think 245 of those episodes are ones that we did together, (laughs) but anyways, uh, welcome back. It's Monday, uh, I was going to say June 1st, but it's actually May 31st. Uh, by the time uh, most of you uh, see this, it will be, or listen to this, it'll be uh, Tuesday, June 1st, which is exciting. That means uh, for us here in the Northern Hemisphere, that means that summer is only three weeks away. And sadly, if you're in the Summer Hemisphere, that means that winter is only three weeks away. So glass half full, <laughs> glass half empty. So whichever way you want to look at it, but uh, exciting. And also, we are broadcasting live on YouTube tonight. And uh, Mark, just uh, an FYI, uh, just before we started, I said I wasn't sure if it would actually work or not, but I I can confirm that uh, the YouTube studio, that the live stream is out there. So that's exciting. We've been trying a couple of uh, different things here and it's going to be fun. So hopefully uh, we'll we'll put this out on the Twitter feed. Hopefully uh, some of you uh, jump in. And uh, basically what we're going to do is we're going to go over, uh, like the mailbag is bursting at the seams. Like uh, every time we put the call to action out there, you guys respond big time, which is completely awesome. We love it. And um, hopefully we can get to most of these comments and questions and everything. If not, uh, we might just bump some of them over to the show on Thursday night. Uh, But Mark... Where do you want to start? This is kind of a little bit, well, not like there's a real strict for, you know, format that we uh, hold on the show anyways, but uh, where, where do you want to start? You had this very impressive document that you sent me this afternoon. So uh, wh- why did you take it away? Yeah, I appreciate that. And this is also very exciting. And I don't ever get nervous when we're recording a podcast, but just knowing that potentially <laughs> we might have some people watching us uh, kind of changes the dynamic and the atmosphere a little bit. And you know what? Shame on you, by the way. Last time we recorded an entire episode while I had a bottle of Windex within the frame of the webcam and you didn't say anything. So uh, a few of our eagle eyed viewers definitely caught that. <laughs> but you know, I think one of the things I want to call out or one of the things I want to start with from a question perspective is, and this question I'm not really going to assign to a specific listener because it's been asked so many times. And we talked a little bit about Max Mosley during the last podcast. And we talked about right. his, his really important role with the FIA. And I think a lot of the questions from our listeners were really, what the hell is the FIA and what does it do and why is it relevant to Formula One? And I think the first thing that's really important to clarify here is that in North America, we're not used to the intrusion of international governing bodies in our sports. The NHL is the NHL. It manages the commercial interests of the team. It manages the product on the on the ice. The NBA is the NBA. It manages the commercial interests of the teams and the players, and it also manages the product and the officiating on the floor. And same goes for Major League Baseball, and the same goes for the NFL. Formula One, and I think you'll probably have some things to add to this, but Formula One is very much like international football in the sense that 
Formula One, Liberty, effectively manages the commercial components of the sport. So uh, enabling teams to join, uh, managing the commercial enterprises, TV revenue, uh, putting on races, working with organizers, attracting sponsors. But ultimately, the FIA is the international governing body of motorsport. And ultimately, the FIA is the body that comes in and institutes the championship, manages track safety, certifies tracks, uh, helps to govern the evolution of the cars and the power units. Ultimately, it's very, very different than I think we're accustomed to in North America, whereas NASCAR is this fully contained entity that manages all aspects of the, the product. IndyCar is very much the same as a contained entity that manages all of the aspects of its product. Formula One is different where you have Liberty, which effectively owns Formula One. It manages the commercial side of the business. But the actual championship and the safety and the tracks and ultimately the governance of the sport is managed through this international body called the FIA. Mark, I don't know if I missed anything, but I think I, I tried to put it in terms that would be a little bit more familiar to our North American listeners. Did I miss anything or would you add anything to that description of the FIA? No, I think you did a pretty good do- a job sort of just uh, summing up in a in a nutshell. I mean, I, I think that is one of the things that uh, maybe when you're, you're new to the sport, especially uh, if you're North American based, is just that uh, sometimes the way that these European based sports uh, operate and function is a little bit different than what, uh, what we're used to. But I think that uh, you did a, a pretty pretty good uh, job of uh, summing that up. And I would think, yep. I would just say as well, and this is probably one analogy that most of our listeners are probably familiar with. International club football is governed as much by FIFA as it mm-hmm. is by the international domestic organizations. I think that would probably be the, I think that would probably be the closest parallel, right? FIA I, would, I would think so. I, I think that would be a pretty good uh, parallel to, to, to draw with it. I mean, each sport uh, obviously has its own uh, unique, uh, unique uh, needs and structures and things like that. But just uh, sort of on a like on a macro, on a, on a big uh, oversight uh, kind of level, I would say that uh, that's a pretty good uh, comparison to, to make. I mean, you have to remember too that when it comes to things like um, uh, North America, I mean, you always hear that one uh, term uh, tossed about. It doesn't uh, matter if it's the NHL, NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA. Is always franchise 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 right, right? and um, formula one is a little bit uh, different because all these teams are different um, they're, they're, they're all independent it's not like they're paying for a slot in formula one you know it's not like uh, you know they i mean they do cap it at 20 teams but uh, i mean sometimes that number has been bigger sometimes it's been smaller but it's not like you see like a new team that was going to come into the nba or something there's like say a 500 million dollar expansion fee or something like that so that that's a, another difference that, that's one thing that i would add uh, that's a little bit different and of course no collective bargaining agreements between say the FIA and Formula One and the drivers and I think you we talked about that uh, just last week I think you uh, summed it up uh, really nicely about how this this handful the secret society of like FIA approved <laughs> lawyers have access to the secret vault in Geneva or whatever it is that uh, can actually get in there to scrutinize and examine the contracts that uh, the teams make uh, with their drivers which is uh, again is really different because I know for some of the the outlets that I've covered major leagues uh, soccer for before that some of the most popular articles that we would have every year would be when the uh, the, the, the players union would uh, publish the uh the, the, the player's salaries because everybody wants to know, you know what everybody else is earning, right? And uh, those always were, were really quite uh, you know, popular articles. All right. So w- what is the next item uh, up? Uh, I, I know we've got this big one here. I, I think you had some uh, questions just about the, uh, the, the show format as well. Did you not? Yeah, I do. Um, and this is a question. It was a really good question that we got from at Donnelly B, Bobby Donnelly. Question for you guys. If you don't do the pod for money, 
why do you have ads? And I think this would probably be a really good question for you to kind of kind of speak to. Yeah, so uh, that 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 is um, you know that's a good point, and uh, certainly I completely uh, understand that one. So the the reason that why we have ads is um, uh, well, there, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, we do this a hundred percent, you know, for fun. You know, we both have our nine to five jobs, uh, which uh, you know are fun sort of in a different way, <laughs> as fun as a nine to five job that can be. But basically, uh, you know, we have a, a network that uh, that we're part of. And, um, you know, I the other show that I did, we did it for years, we paid basically everything out of pocket. And uh, when it came to this um, podcast, the first couple of years, I was paying for all the hosting fees and anything on the back end out of my own pocket. And then I had the opportunity to join up uh, with this, uh, this uh, media company. And um, yeah, so basically, the the ads help pay for the back end stuff. They're the hosting fees and a lot of the stuff that uh, that we pay it's not a lot anything that uh, that that gets left over unfortunately you know i i'm, I'm gonna have to buy wait another year to buy another ferrari it's just the the, the, <laughs> the way that is but uh, you know joking aside anything that uh, that gets left over it's it's quite modest it's uh, you know it goes onto my starbucks card but uh, basically the ads uh, you know they, they help pay for the production costs because uh, and and the hosting costs and um, you know i you know, I, I'm grateful to have them, but I, I think that uh, some people had said, well, hey, if you had like a subscription service and the opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, do something via Patreon or maybe even Apple, um, you know, Apple podcast now has a premium service. I mean, that that's that's model that, uh, you know, if people are interested in that where they get like an ad fee free or feed, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm totally uh, up for looking into that because, you know, a, a lot of shows that I listen to as well and enjoy, they all are sponsored by they have their advertisers and it can be disruptive. Uh, I, I completely understand that but uh, at the end of the day you know this can be a bit of an expensive uh, hobby so you know there, there, there's a bit of a you know <laughs> there's a bit of a trade-off let's just put it that way so you, you know I seriously summarized it perfectly yeah i mean seriously if you guys you know if, if you're up for that you want to if you want us to start like a patreon thing or maybe some sort of subscription service you know just like a couple of bucks a month you know we'd be very much uh you know uh, be interested to hear from you send us a tweet at scootery f1 pod or email us at scootery f1 pod at gmail.com and uh, you know we'll see if there's any interest and uh, by by all means, we can certainly do something with that. And just to the, the the quantity of ads is the contract that we have. They specify, you know, every so many minutes, you know, we have to give the uh, you know break, just like you know traditional TV or radio or whatever. So it's uh, just uh, part of the deal. So that, that is what it is. And you know, hopefully next year I'll be able to buy that Ferrari, but I'm not counting on it just yet. Anyways, <laughs> I'll just add as well, and I think a lot of our listeners know this, but I was part of a podcast that we did for a couple of years for 2019, 2020 called Flash F1. And, and I can definitely speak to the costs associated with standing up a podcast. I think sometimes there's this perception that you can do a podcast by buying a $40 USB mic. And for sure you can. Yeah. If you want to do something that sounds sophisticated and it sounds professional, the costs add up quickly. And you're talking about uh, multi-channel interfaces. You're talking about licensing music, paying a commercial company to create a logo. Like those costs add up very quickly. And yeah. I think sometimes people might have an appetite to absorb those. And I did with Flash F1 for a little while, but ultimately it gets to a point where you just have to weigh the pros and cons. Is it worth continuing to absorb these costs for the sake of the fun? Or is there, or is there an upside to potentially onboarding a sponsor who can help offset some of those costs so you can keep doing what you love without taking money away from some of your other passions and hobbies and family as well? So I think you did a really great job summarizing that one. 
Cheers. All right, let's uh, go on to the, the 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 next one. The first thing I, I hate to do is just after uh, you know answering a question about uh, you know commercials and ads and stuff like that is dive into <laughs> commercial break. So let's try to push it a little bit uh, more. Uh, you know, l- let's answer another question or two before we get there. So here's one from Jeff, and I, I really thank Jeff for sending us this message because I think one of the things that we keep talking about is we want to do a really good job of interfacing and interacting and empowering our audience to be part of the show and be part of the culture. And he he kind of put us on blast here, and I really respect the way he did it. So, and I quote, hey guys, just listen to the new podcast. I think you really missed the mark on the PED subject. From my personal experience, it's not about blood doping or recovery. The most used drug in racing is Adderall, and it's used to enhance focus. The giveaway is the pinpoint pupils. Most guys get around the test because it's pretty simple to just get a prescription for it. It's everywhere in racing. So I want to address this one because one, he's absolutely right. We we did absolutely miss the mark. And I think sometimes when we talk about performance enhancing drugs, we think about things that are designed to help aid recovery, that are helped to or designed to help increase bulk, all those kind of pieces that we would associate with Major League Baseball and things like that from a North American perspective. But one of the things that has been very, very common in sports across North America and in North American motorsport racing or motorsports in general is the use of, I think, what are often casually referred to as greenies or amphetamines, which can be extracted commonly from Adderall. And these are tools that are designed to help with visual and mental acuity. So it's not necessarily something that's going to help with mass and aid recovery, but it's something that athletes have been using for years or decades in North America to help with focus. And this helps with baseball when you're talking about focusing in on a pitch or staying focused on the mound. And from a racing perspective, when you're in that hot, sweaty cockpit for an hour or two hours racing lap after lap after lap in high intense racing, it's something that's designed to help dial in your focus. Now, It's not something that's necessarily been attributed to modern F1, but I did find a quote from Sterling Moss, who's openly admitted that in his days of racing, amphetamines were a very, very, very common part of the sport. And Mm -hmm. I can speak from personal experience, having seen and been around it in sports here. It's still very common in team sports at the amateur and the college level in Canada and the United States. And I know it's very common in amateur and semi-pro stock car racing and karting whether it's prevalent in formula one i don't know but absolutely jeff great call amphetamines are absolutely a big part of sports and motorsports and i think hopefully they just haven't penetrated formula one you know it's funny too because i i think that uh, last week when we addressed this one it sounded the you 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 had to go immediately you had to drag barry bonds into this (laughs) it's just like it sounds like we have a bitter listener in in pittsburgh which i think uh, you elicited uh, quite uh you know quite a reaction i forget who sent the the original message and uh, i thought it was kind of funny i thought what a great twitter handle at bitter in pittsburgh i don't know if that's a thing (laughs) you know not to make light of it but uh you know of all the great sports uh, connections you could have made with pittsburgh you had to go for Barry Bonds. I mean, why not the Immaculate Reception or something like that? But uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, all good in the end. Uh, but uh, that, that that was a bit of a funny moment. I never expected you to go in that uh, the, the, that direction, but also a, a great call too on the the Adderall on, the, on that. And yeah, we, we totally uh, overlooked uh, that one. Okay, well, you know, let's not prolong the inevitable. Let's take a a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to go back uh, into the mailbag. That's what we're going to do all night. Uh, Well, maybe not all night uh, for the next uh, little while. And uh, we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be uh, right back. Passion, 
drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Okay, uh, Mark, where do you want to go now? Uh, There's still uh, quite a few. There there was a couple of comments in the mailbox itself. Uh, We can do that uh, a little bit uh, later. Why why don't we just keep uh, running down the the, the mailbag uh, that's all bursting from, uh, from the tweets? So I've got a couple of questions and I think you would probably be a great person to answer these. So sure. the first one is how did you get into Formula One? And this is a common question that I get from a lot of our listeners, especially mm-hmm. Gen DTS uh, folks, which to be honest is pretty much all of us at this point. And the <laughs> second one is, and this is a really great question because I think one of the things that people are excited about in 2021 is as COVID restrictions start to get lifted and more people start to get vaccinated, more and more people are going to have the opportunity to attend a Formula One race. And that's exciting because so many of our listeners and so many new Formula One fans really only came on board last year or this year, and they haven't had the opportunity. So suddenly there's tens of thousands, if not millions of folks that now have the opportunity to go to a Formula One race and they're excited to do so. So the first question is one, how did you get into F1? And the second one is, what should we know when attending an F1 race and what are some best practices for race day? Okay, well, uh, for from my point of view, um, you know, or, or for my story, anyways, uh, my dad uh, is English, and uh, he was a Formula One fan. I mean, I grew up, uh, and Formula One was there. I don't particularly remember how it was uh, broadcast way back in the day. I seem to remember growing up as a kid, there was like maybe like a condensed uh, like Grand Prix on CBC at the time. I don't remember like exact. So this would be like the mid to late eighties. Uh, and I mean, from the nineties on, it was on TSN, which is now uh, LinkedIn and, uh, and hooked up uh, with, with ESPN. And uh, we, we get the sky sports feed and it's been that way for, for a good number of, uh, of years. But yeah, so, I mean, I grew up uh, with that. It was, it was always there. And uh, that, that was a cool thing. And my, my dad had tons of pictures that he took at places like Silverstone and brands hatch and, you know, told all these stories about, you know, these, these amazing, uh, you know, uh, drivers, that we we've all heard about i mean you mentioned one just now sterling moss my uh, picture that my dad had of uh, sterling moss actually just sitting on the bookshelf uh, behind me but you know jim clark was my dad's uh, one of my dad's favorites uh, graham hill and uh, you know we, we sort of uh, parlayed that into the 90s when uh, when his son damon was racing for for williams and then uh, became a world champion back in the, in 96 and it's just always been there. I mean, I, I mean, I'm a big sports guy, anyways. I, I love uh, most uh, sports: hockey, baseball, basketball. 
uh, soccer, uh, hockey, you know, go on and on and on. But uh, Formula One has been, uh, you know, it, it's always been there. It's all, always been, uh, I'm just completely fascinated uh, by it, uh, just to every single, you know, aspect of it. And it's, it, it's so funny too, when you, when you look at it, uh, just the way that the sport evolves over time and over the years. And it, it's funny too, because I think I mentioned it a month or so ago. I, I went back and watched, I think it was the 2009 Australian Grand Prix. Yeah, what's the yeah, it was 2009 because I wanted to go back and take a look at that uh, that memorable season when when Braun GP came out of nowhere and just completely surprised everybody with this amazing car that was so dominant. And it's it's funny. I mean, the cars look. I mean, number one, they're smaller, they're narrower, they're shorter. You know, narrower wheelbase and and everything, and longer pit stops because they had uh, refueling back in the day. And it's it, it's funny. I mean, it, it just um, I don't want to say it looks clownish, but it looks a lot more chaotic than Formula One do, one does now. I mean, especially when we have like a, we we live in the era of the sub two second pit stop, which is uh, absolutely uh, mind blowing. But I'm going to throw it back uh, to you now, uh, Mark, uh, before we answer the second part about uh, best, best practices uh, for races. How how did you get into to, to Formula One? It's it's interesting. So my family is uh, British, and I grew up in the UK. I actually, to be fair, I kind of bounced back and forth between Canada, the UK. Spent a lot of time in the US playing team sports. But when I was really young, I used to spend the summers with my grandparents, and every single Sunday we would watch Formula One. And it's funny because I realized the other day at one point we started watching Indy as well. So after Nigel Mansell went to Indy in '93, mm-hmm. we started watching Indy as well, which is how I came to know with the Canadian driver Paul Tracy. But I used to watch a lot of Formula One with my grandparents and they were huge huge fans of the Williams team and Nigel Mansell so I have a very soft spot for the Williams team and I've had the opportunity to go to that factory Same. a couple times yeah. in recent years I think the other piece too is my dad wasn't necessarily a Formula One fan but he was a huge motorbike racing fan so growing oh, okay. up he would build Nortons and Triumphs or and Tritons which were kind of like the cafe racer hybrid so I came up in this kind of culture of motorsport and it was really probably the last 10 years where I've kind of leaned back in. But yeah, once again, it really came from family. And it was something that I inherited just because motorsport is so deeply entrenched in British culture in a way that I think is probably a little bit difficult for a lot of North Americans to uh, to imagine. And I think the second question then, and I'll answer this one first because I'm already speaking, but in terms of an F1 race, Every F1 race is different and every track has very different rules about conduct and what you can bring into the track on race day. So my recommendation is certainly do your homework because if you're going to somewhere like Austin or Silverstone, when you enter the track, you can go in through any gate and you can basically walk the entire outer perimeter of the track. You can bring in food, you can bring in drinks, you can bring in cameras, you can bring in camping chairs, you can bring in flags, you can bring in banners. It's very much like a music festival, whereas other tracks have much, 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 much tighter security. Some only allow you to restricted sections of the track. Some will only allow you direct access to your grandstand. Some won't allow you to bring flags, banners, and many won't allow you to bring any food or drink at all. So just do your research because your experience is going to vary. And if you're attending a race in Western Europe, regardless of what you think the weather is going to be like, bring a rain jacket just mm-hmm. in case because you never know how quickly the, the weather could change. But I would say do your homework and plan accordingly. And if you can bring food, I would always advise it simply because track food quality can vary and it's extremely expensive. So if you have the opportunity to bring a cooler, bring a cooler, have some fun picnic, uh, it'll make the day a lot cheaper and you can still soak in the atmosphere without incurring a lot of the, uh, the costs. And I think the last piece would be as well, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, 
don't wait till race day to buy your merch because it's absurdly expensive at the track. I mean, it's yep. it's absurdly expensive online, but you can save a little bit of money if you buy it in advance. Yeah, and when it comes to uh, choosing where you want to seat or sit uh, in the stands itself, I mean, sometimes there's a general admission and stuff like that. I mean, you can just go and uh, basically uh, take a lawn chair or a, you know, a blanket or something like that, much like you do when you go to the beach. But uh, I mean, certainly uh, you want to pick somewhere where I think you get like a, a good view of the track. I mean, um, we were talking about it last week about the the, the Nurburgring where where we sat uh, way back uh, all those years ago at the bottom of the track in the hairpin, which is great because you you, you want to try and pick somewhere where you're going to get a good view. I mean, of course, you're going to pay the most uh, money if you're sitting across uh, from the pits at start finish. But I mean, you're going to see a lot of action in the pits. I mean, the paddock club above the pit lane, that's uh, kind of a different level altogether. But when we went to, to, to Barcelona, we were sitting on the pit straight, but just you know, by, by, the, by the pit exit. So we could see we had a good uh, view looking up the pit straight for the start because you got that really long run down into turn one and through that uh, series of corners there, turns one and two. And then up into turn three, but uh, also what happens the way the Barcelona goes is it folds back in on itself. So the cars would disappear into turn three and then they come back into turns four and five and then six. And then you'd see them kind of in the infield there. And so you kind of get to see a good portion of the track. So you want to see you want to try and get a good view, you know, if that's in your price range, because obviously Formula One tickets, regardless where you're going, is is pretty pricey. But uh, that that would be my uh you know, my tip. And then, um, of course, if uh, you're picking a race, you'll know, pick somewhere that, uh, that, that that is interesting. I mean, w- one race that I'd love to go and see would be uh, in Japan at Suzuka, you know, because I- I've got a fascination just in general with uh, Japan and Japanese history and Japanese culture. I mean, we went to Spain and, and Barcelona. And like I say, it's, it's a fantastic city. I mean, we were there for the entire week and uh, well, actually a little bit more than a week. So we kind of had our, our days at the at the at the track for for the qualifying for the race and for for everything else, and then we still had several days in and around the the the, the city to, to to visit and to do the tourism thing. So th- those would be my tips. Next question for you: Moving the salon. Yep. From at Sahil JJ underscore one Sahil, maybe you guys could schedule a Twitter quote unquote space to try and interact more with fans of the show. Cool, kind of kind of like a. A Twitter podcast or a twadcast, <laughs> if there's such a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a part of the fun of, uh, you know, do, doing something like this is being able to, uh, to, to to connect with other fans around the world. That's one thing I enjoyed uh, doing with, uh, you know, my other work uh, covering Major League Soccer and just the, the, the people that I was able to meet, not just locally here in Vancouver, but also the, the, the opportunities and just the sign of the cool things uh, that uh, the people would send us, you know, especially from like expats living in different parts of the world that grew up in Vancouver, for example, and we're still following the local teams, but formula one's uh, different because I mean, we literally hear from all four corners of the, uh, of the globe. And that's uh, really cool. I mean, as I go uh, now to the, uh, to, to the live stream, we had uh, a couple of, uh, 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 <laughs> couple of messages here Shao Khan uh, he said a fellow F1 uh, fan from uh, Canada Nigerian Canadian said uh, Lewis got him into F1 and I mean that's uh, you know just uh, one you know another person there he says uh, you know he goes on to say uh, that Brazilian win was epic Uh, I got into F1 back in 2009 and went back to binge watch F1 2007 2008 I've been hooked since and uh, then he also finishes off by saying Monaco is the most boring track on earth which (laughs) kind of echoes my sentiments uh, from a couple of uh, weeks ago but uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. I I think that's a, that's a great uh, thing. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the thing that the way that it's uh, kind of working. If you're if you're interacting via Twitter, you're going to get the other mark. If you're sending uh, emails, you're you're going to interact 
with the, with, with this park. So uh, we, you know, if you guys want to do that, we can set, certainly send, uh, set something up. But the one thing that's a little bit uh, difficult is, you know, being based here on the West Coast and uh, literally getting uh, people, uh, you know, uh, connecting from all over the globe is finding a, a time and a date that works for, for, for everyone. So that's the, the, the only challenge. All right. Well, you, you seem to have uh, frozen on on me for a second here. There you I'm go. Back. You're you back. Me? Okay. You seem to have a little bit of a connectivity problem there. So the live stream is kind of glitching. Although uh, Falco Fire said uh, on uh, the Twitter YouTube, uh, st- or sorry, on the, the YouTube stream that uh, we're coming through loud and clear. So <laughs> at you least know, one and, of us is. And kudos to him. He's been a fantastic follower. One other question then. Um, so moving sure. on. And this one I'll take quickly. So this one's from at Anthony Potato. And I apologize if I pronounce that wrong. I, I love this question. I saw you just liked a couple of my tweets about LeBron, and I don't know if it's just about social engagement or whether you actually like the dunk, but there's actually so many similarities between LeBron James and Lewis Hamilton, both on the court track and their image off the court. So I, I'll address this one quickly. Sure. I think that's absolutely an accurate statement. And please feel free to add on anything if I miss this. I think absolutely both of them have assumed this role of social justice warriors. I have a great deal of respect for both of them. I think LeBron James, unfortunately, in North America comes under quite a lot of heat for his advocacy. And I think that's partly because in North America, there's this chunk of sports fans that lean into sports as an escape from everything else, from politics, from uh, social issues, from financial issues. They lean into sports as an escape. And I think sometimes folks don't necessarily appreciate um, or respect when athletes bring social causes onto the court. For me, I think this is a good thing and I'm glad they do it because I think they have a platform that they need to leverage to help address these kind of social disparities and these social opportunities within the fabric of our society. Lewis does this as well. And I think it's important for Lewis because he exists and operates in a very different realm than some of these NBA players and some of these pop stars and some of these musicians in the sense that historically his audience has been predominantly, I shouldn't say predominantly white because obviously kind of the roots of Formula One are deeply entrenched in Western Europe. But I think the traditional fan base and the typical corporate base still resides very much in Europe, no matter how much it's made strides in the Middle East and in parts of South America and parts of Asia. But I think what Lewis has been able to accomplish over the last couple of years, just in terms of bringing this message to the forefront of Formula One has been important because if he wasn't doing it, nobody would be doing it. And he's exposing an entirely different audience to a message that may not have been exposed to that message otherwise. So I I just, to wrap this up, totally agree. He's taken on very much the same position as LeBron James in terms of advocating for social justice causes in a way that some folks might not. And to be fair, I think if he didn't do it, he would be criticized. He does do it and he's criticized. I think he's just leaning into his heart and doing what he feels is right. And I have a great deal of respect for that. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, I, I've heard uh, kind of uh, both sides of the story from from different uh, people that uh, that have gotten in touch uh, over the past uh, number of weeks and and months, and it, it seems to be kind of split down the the the, the middle. Some people are say this is sports, kind of leave the the social justice things and politics out of it, and some people are very much yeah. I think it's great that uh, you know guys like uh, Lewis and LeBron are using uh, you know the exposure and the platforms that they have to 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 bring exposure to these things. 
and uh, and and some people uh, you know i've i've actually heard uh, you know even even say that uh, some people just kind of like roll their eyes whenever lewis kind of uh, you know starts addressing these things and I, I guess it's just a, a personal thing because um, I, I think for a lot of people that uh, sports is very much uh, like like an escape from the real world. So, I'm, you know, you don't want to ignore all the, the, the nasty and horrible things out there. But uh, I, I can understand that some people would not, don't for like sure. seeing it dragged into that just because, you know, it is, you know, Formula One, basketball, whatever it might be, is just that escape from the everyday, you know, the heavy stuff that we have to uh, to, to deal with. So, you know, I, I, I think it's very much a, a personal reaction action to to whoever whoever it is right next question and i don't mean to uh move on quickly but we just have so many questions we've got to keep the pace going and i'm typically the one that kind of slows it to a crawl (laughs) but the next one and this is a a great question from steve williams at steve fred will can you guys do an episode on the upcoming regulation changes for 2022 i know there's a lot to it but maybe an explanation for dummies so i haven't talked to you about this yet but i know we've been planning some content for the summer break so for those of you another formula one we have a four-week summer break that we have to look forward to quote unquote i think that might might be a really great show to do during the summer break, uh, effectively a look for it to or a primer for the 2022 regulation changes. I don't know if you agree, but I think we've got a couple of folks that would probably be really happy to join us and kind of walk us through what's going to happen for 2022. Formula 101 enroll now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's a great idea. I mean, uh, basically, when it comes to all the, the 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 changes from kind of like a big overview, I think I'm kind of uh, familiar with those, but it'd be really good to kind of like dive down and really go down that rabbit hole and, and really dig into that nitty gritty about what is going to change. Because I mean, the sport is going to look uh, fundamentally different to come the, you know, the, the start of next year. I mean, it's, it, it's a completely, it, it, it's a watershed moment. It's uh, that just one of those milestones where they, you know, that, that, that comes once, you know, basically every generation where they really just reset uh, the, the entire sport you know, I, I mean, except for the power units, which are frozen for, um, you know, several years yet. But I mean, the, the cars themselves are going to be fundamentally different. I mean, we did see those mock-ups now that would have come out, what, about 2018, 2019, 2019. or thereabouts? Yeah. That uh, when they, you know, they, they, because they had this working group that I think was headed up by, by what was it, Ross Braun and Rory Byrne. Some of these guys that have been around for, for a long, long time and were uber successful uh, during their Formula One careers to look at some of these uh, different areas you know i mean the the one big uh, criticism is just the the disturbance that the the aerodynamics that these cars um you know, create behind them and how it affects, uh, you know, that the, the fact that they just can't get close enough to actually, uh, you know, overtake. And, and that was one thing that they really wanted to look at. So they came up with, with all these different areas that they wanted to address. And that was basically the, um, I, I guess, the starting point for where these regulations were going to come or, or where they were going to go, I should say. And then they had these, uh, these mock-ups of what the cars looked like. And they looked, you know, awesome. But what they turn out to, to be in reality, I mean, it's going to be, you know, it, it's going to be a surprise. I mean, I, I think that every year that I've done this show, and we certainly did it this year, where we uh, we, we did our March Madness, where we had a bracket of the best uh, looking car, which was a lot of fun. But you know, it, it'll be it's it's going to be really you know exciting to see what these cars look like, and you know, are they going to end up looking similar to what the cars are now, or are they going to look uh, similar to what uh, the uh, um, you know the mockups uh, were when they uh, released a couple of years ago? And then uh, you know, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll see. And uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Hey, Mark, I just want to take a, another quick uh, break here where we're at that uh, that time again. And when we come back, I'll let you uh, go to the next question in the mailbag. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All 
All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, where do we want to go to now? Uh, again, there's so many great uh, questions and points uh, that have been uh, been uh, sent into us. Uh, what are we do? Can we use darts? Or- <laughs> I, I want to just quickly add something to that last question, and I promise I'll be quick. But I, I think for the benefit of those listening, because I know the summer break's a little ways off, I think the one thing I want to clarify about the 2022 regulations is they're really designed to do a couple of things. They're designed to reduce costs because they want to continue to make Formula One sustainable for the current teams and continue to attract new teams. They're designed to increase parity and they're designed to, as a consequence of both of those things, improve racing on the track. So what we're ultimately going to see are cars that will feature far less technical innovation than we've seen in the past because cars will be far more standardized than they are today. Today, engineers and designers have a relative amount of freedom in designing their cars in the new world in 2022 they won't have that same degree of freedom at least not in the way that we've been used to it over the past so the formula one of 2022 is going to be somewhere between f1 of today and the current indycar championship where the cars are very very much spec cars so expect to see some simplification but ultimately if it creates a better racing product that's a good thing as well Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I've got another question for you here. Uh, Let's take a look here. I dig the pod. So this is from iSoup Auto Art, Zachary Carroll. I dig the pod. And this is a question I get all the time. Have you guys thought about setting up a fantasy league? I think it'd be fun. FantasyGP.com is my personal favorite, but any would be fun. Yeah, you know, actually, uh, I did set up a fantasy league, uh, I, I think, two years ago. But I, you know, honestly, I, I've just uh, let it uh, slide by the wayside. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, when, when I was doing the show on my uh, my own, I mean, it, it just basically came down to producing content and, uh, excuse me, just uh, putting it out there. When it came to all these extra things like, uh, you know, managing the social media, doing things like uh, fantasy league, I just uh, didn't have enough uh, time uh, for it. But uh, again, now that we have uh, more hands, this is uh, definitely, well, more hands, I mean, an extra set of hands. That's uh, certainly something that, uh, that that we should look into because it's always fun, right? You know, and and I'll be I'll be honest. I mean, I'm a pushover when it comes to any sort of fantasy sports because I am terrible. I'll set up my my team, my league, whatever, and I'll just uh, you know I set up like for the first weekend of the year, and then like four months later, I'll go I'll go check and I'm oh yeah I'm like dead last, and I'm like well I, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to move up now, so why bother? So yeah, I, I suck at those sort of things, but that shouldn't stop the rest of you guys from having fun. You know, I agree. I, I have a bad tendency to start fantasy sports and check out after two weeks. But I think given how big this community is coming, that I think it would be something exciting to retry yeah. next year. And maybe we can uh, maybe we can lean into somebody in the audience, one of our listeners, to take on the responsibility of setting that up and managing it. And then we can use the show each week to talk a little bit about leaders and those that are participating in results and maybe set up a prize as well. So I think come this winter, that's something we'll we'll look at. Another question here, and this is one I want to take because it's one that I'm super, super, super passionate about. I'm just going to dig this one up. So this comes from at Vintage Viewport, Christopher Letty, who, by the way, has his own podcast about uh, collectible toys. He asked about F1 collecting. This is a really interesting topic because I think the first thing to kind of speak about right now is for a number of different reasons, the Globes experiencing something of an asset bubble. There's a lot of cash. Banks are printing a ton of money and people are investing heavily in collectibles, whether it's trading cards, whether it's shoes, whether it's sports memorabilia. And I've been monitoring this for a while. Formula One has kind of escaped this bubble, but I think as Formula One becomes more and more 
popular in North America, you're going to see more and more folks in the US buying into F1 memorabilia. And there's a couple of different things. So I've got a few pieces here that I kind of want to show everyone. So if you're watching on the YouTube channel, if you want to go back and look at this later, one of the most popular pieces of F1 memorabilia are 118th scale model cars. And there's a couple of really big brands that produce these. One is called Mini Champs, which makes two to $300 models. And another is a company called Spark, which makes resin models. And the resin models are far more detailed, but typically they'll go for three or $400. The other piece that's very, very popular are these one half scale helmets. These come out every year for each of the drivers or most of the drivers. They're about a, they're about $150 to $200 Canadian, about $100 US. But again, very, very popular. This is one of my Lewis helmets. I think this helmet is from 2015. But you can see we actually got him to sign this one in person a few years ago. So this one's very, very special to us. But this is another type of memorabilia that's very, very popular. And then finally, and this is what I think is going to go absolutely bananas in the US, is car parts are very, very, very popular and very accessible. You can buy entire Formula One cars, typically without the power unit, but you can buy every imaginable part. You can buy wheels, you can buy side pods, you can buy wings. This is a gear out of the gearbox from a 2005 Williams car. And when I bought it, it was still wet with fluid, which is crazy. And the interesting thing about this part is you can actually see the serial number. So when these parts go into cars, they track every single part by a serial number so they can go into their database and they know, hey, this gear has been in a car for 200 kilometers. It needs to be replaced. But I think those are going to be very popular. And one of the things I learned about the other day as well is there are now tops trading cards for Formula One, which I had no idea existed. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because uh, Ben Fuller sent uh, sent an email and he's uh, just uh, talking about that as well. He says, uh, hi, I saw the latest tweet on the uh, F1 Top Sports Card. I'm a big F1 fan and got into the hobby a year ago. I enjoyed it so much that I recently started my own online store dedicated to F1 Sports Card. Wow. Uh, you know, I think that's that's interesting. I mean, we, we kind of like, uh, you know, North American culture. I mean, sports cars have always cards have always been a thing. Totally. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be 100 uh, percent honest with you. This is something that kind of slipped uh, underneath the, 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 the radar for me. I mean, I've got a, a collection. I've got, uh, you know, several, uh, you know, die cast the 118 uh, models. I don't have any of the helmets. I've got a, you know, a vast. Uh, well, not vast. I probably have about uh, seven or eight uh, hats. You know, I've got a couple Mercedes. I got some Ferrari. I've got some Williams. I've got a Jordan, you know, like, uh, you know, kind of spanning the, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the different races that I've been to. I've got a Williams one. I've got one that I bought uh, at the track in Barcelona for the Spanish Grand Prix, just a sort of souvenir uh, Grand Prix hat. So, you know, I, I've kind of got uh, quite a few uh, different ones. But, uh, you know, cards said that that's interesting. And, you know, I could see something like that uh, being quite popular in in North America. I mean, you know, you, you see sports cards uh, all the time. I mean, my son, he likes to collect hockey cards. I mean, that's something that I did when I was a kid. But the, the, the Formula One cards, I think that's really actually kind of cool. Yeah, and to be honest, it's something that I didn't know existed. And I've been watching the bubble around sports cards for the last couple of years. And I think recently there was a Wayne Gretzky rookie card, a mint condition 10 grade uh, Wayne Gretzky rookie card that went for a little over 3 million US. And they've accelerated in value almost a thousand fold in the last decade. So it doesn't surprise me that Topps is leaning into Formula One trading cards. It's something I, I'm now curious to get my hands on and hopefully get my son into. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. And hopefully that maybe answers your questions a little bit. But F1 collectibles, they're huge in Europe. They haven't made a real imprint in the United States. But I think as the popularity of the sport grows, I think 
all of those different things that I spoke to and you spoke to, whether it's hats, clothing, merchandise, model cars, model helmets, and car parts, I think are going to, and potentially NFT as well, although I don't really yet understand what that is, will I think uh, become much, much, much more popular. I've got another question for you. And I think this is when... If you just uh, just I, I just want to add one more thing, uh, you know, honestly, when it comes to the F1 merch, the one thing that's a real big uh, turnoff uh, for me is just the price point uh, for for most things. Uh, oh you know, my god! When, when you're looking at like sixty, seventy five dollars for for like uh, just even like a like, like a ball cap, you know, plus the the, the shipping just to get it to North America. It, it just uh, really kind of like uh, turns me off. Uh, I mean, occasionally you'll see some uh, merch. Uh, you know, I've I've got a, a Red Bull T-shirt that my, my wife saw at like the uh, the Puma outlet store out by Vancouver International Airport. You know, it's just like they they, they, were, they had uh, Ferrari and they had uh, Red Bull and they only had uh, I think the Ferrari was all like the the ridiculous size. It was like two or three XL or extra small or something like that. Whereas they had like a large for the uh, for, for the Red Bull. And uh, but, you know, there isn't too much that you uh, you you see too often. Although the other week uh, I was outside just barbecuing and I saw this guy walking down the street wearing a Red Bull T-shirt, you know, like uh, like not just a Red Bull T-shirt for for the brand, but the actual for for Red Bull racing, you know, you know, COVID notwithstanding, I felt like running across and at least giving the guy like a like a high five or a hug or something just because, you know, like uh, quite often, uh, you know, I I feel like, uh, you know, like I'm this lonely man on the Formula One island. uh, you know, so I mean, every time you, you see somebody else uh, local that, uh, that that's a Formula One fan, it's just like, you know, it's just like, oh, it's like instant connection. But uh, anyways, I, I rambled a bit. Uh, ne- next question, please. That's awesome. So here's a great, great question. So this one comes from Rene Karens, our Rene. Hey, Mark, one comment on your podcast. Often you guys talk about the young talents in terms of drivers. We mostly then talk about Lando, Lance, Charles, but we seem to forget that Max is only a month older than Charles. Is he such a veteran already in our view? And how would you rate a 22 to 23 year old Max now against a 22 to 23 year old Lewis? Yeah, isn't that? <laughs> wow, great question. Great question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that we do like uh, view Max as a um, as as a veteran because he came into what when, when he was like what seventeen or something absolutely uh, ridiculous. I mean, is it, I mean, he's just uber talented. I totally. mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, there, there there's no question about it. I mean, uh, Lewis uh, very much uh, the, the same thing. When what was his first year? Two thousand and seven. Two thousand seven as a twenty two yeah. year old. Yeah, something like that. So a little bit uh, older, obviously. I mean, uh, just spent uh, some more time um, in in the junior formula. I mean, the, the the one thing that was different is Lewis had a more competitive car earlier in his career than Max did. I mean, Max, he had that uh, you know that that I guess you could call a bit of an apprenticeship with uh, with Toro Rosso before you know fortune uh, really worked out uh, in in his favor, and Marco and Horner really took that leap of faith uh, to uh, you know do the the, the Kvyat uh, Verstappen Schwitz. Uh, Schwitz uh, switcheroo there i got out eventually back in 2016 i mean he won his first race it's in spain and hasn't uh, looked uh, back since is uh you know recorded quite uh you know a few race victories and, and podiums uh, since then and uh i mean yeah i i think in terms of raw talent i i think that uh at both ages i think that uh you know there, there's a lot of parallels uh, between them i think that uh, that lewis is maybe going to get uh, a, a little bit more of the um 
I don't know. Do you, you want to say cred if you want to call it that? Just because he was he, he was world champion in his second season, and I mean he he beat Fernando Alonso, who was his teammate at McLaren at the time, to do so, and uh, you know basically yanked the world championship out of uh, Felipe Massa's hands. <laughs> I mean, poor old Felipe was uh, what world champion for what 15, 20 seconds or whatever it was, but. Uh, yeah, I, I think that um, for me, I, I'd say that uh, they're they're pretty equal. Yeah, it's it's very interesting stories, and I would encourage people to look into this. So you're right, Lewis was a little bit older, so he went through the Mercedes Academy, whereas whereas Max went through the Red Bull Academy, which means early promotion into Toro Rosso, or at least it was known as Toro Rosso at the time. Hamilton's first year in Formula One in 2007. We talk about how toxic the team environment was at. At, at Mercedes in 2016 with him and Rosberg, but it was nothing compared to the toxic cesspool that was the entire McLaren organization in 2007. He was in a situation where as this rookie driver, he was competing with Alonso, who'd made the move over from Renault, who was at that time a two-time world champion and had every expectation in the world that he was going to be the alpha driver. And there was constant adversity and friction between the two of them. The team was embroiled in one of the biggest scandals in the history of Formula One from a cheating perspective and ultimately yeah. an eight, a hundred million dollar final. Like I would encourage people to go and look at 2007. So what Hamilton was able to do to persevere through all of that, he finished second in 2007. He, he finished behind the champion ultimate Kimi Raikkonen by a single point. And then he won in 2008, I guess, by a single point or two but what he managed to persevere through in those years to 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 win at that rate was absolutely absurd so i want to give him a lot of credit for that but ultimately you can't also dismiss what max verstappen was able to do in terms of winning a formula one race in 2016 as a teenager when most of us were working on getting our driver's license is just incredible but a great 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 question yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hey, Marka, before we go to the uh, the next question, let's uh, you know we have to take our obligatory bla- uh, break, here so, <laughs> so, and then uh, we'll we'll come back and uh, we'll dive back into the uh, Twitter mailbag. So don't go away; we'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. What's up next? I mean, these questions and comments are awesome. Uh, I, I don't know if we're worthy. I, I, I'll, I'll take what, uh, obviously, I'm going to, yeah, we're worthy enough. I, I think I think you're going to like this one. It's technical, but not too technical. So this one comes from uh, at Zach to Adams or Zachary Adams. And I quote, sure. I was reading in a few articles online that they were saying that changes of 2025 could be as dramatic as in 2014. So 2025 being the year when potentially we could see a new power unit. Um, and he goes on to say, as in 2014, when they went to the hybrid V6, it would be interesting to see if they would go to a hybrid with a sustainable fuel source. That seemed to be the main reason Honda pulled out and why companies like the VW Group haven't bought in. I think this is a really, really interesting question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, well, I mean, that that was uh, basically Honda's uh, big reason for, for, for pulling out of Formula One was saying that uh, because, you know, we're, we're going all electric, we want to focus uh, on our road fleet and that uh, transition. I mean, I remember even just, uh, you know, was it two, three years ago or something like that? It was Volvo that said that they were basically they were going to freeze uh, development on all their internal combustion engines by, you know, with the ultimate goal that they were convert their entire fleet uh, to um, all electric. I think it's sort of sometime 2025 ish or thereabouts. I mean, 
that trend is well underway and uh, it, it is really really interesting i mean uh, you know that they have started to talk about what these engines are going to look like post 2025 i mean these aren't going to change over the next uh, several years i mean basically what we've had uh, since 2014 with some developments minor developments uh, along the way um you know they they're, they're here to stay so i mean what happens in 26 is a, a complete unknown but they've really been hinting at it uh, over the last um, couple of months that uh, that they're looking at these sort of like really exotic sort of biofuels and things that uh, you know or, or exotic uh, and sustainable fuel additives and stuff like that so i i think we've kind of speculated about it uh, before that we kind of think that that's maybe where the the, the sport is going to go is that they're going to kind of kick this can down the far or down the road as far as they can while the uh, you know i i guess uh, you know the development on the electric side gets done behind uh, closed doors or maybe in a, a different uh, racing series like uh, Formula E because you know if they were going to, to go uh, convert uh, Formula 1 to all electric right now i mean it uh, you know the, the performance just wouldn't be there i mean if they could um, you know get the cars to perform and do the the, the different uh, you know or the same things that they can with the the, the internal combustion engines regardless if it's normally aspirated or the you know the, the turbo hybrid uh, V6 you know that would uh, you know i, I think that's ultimately where they're going to go and i think uh, they're going to wait on that until uh, electric power can uh, you know, can can uh, replicate what we're getting right now. That's just that's just my own gut feeling. No, I, and I think that's a really great summary. And I think my head's in very much the same place. I, I think I, I was listening to a podcast, probably winter twenty nineteen, winter twenty twenty, and Ross Braun, the managing director, of motorsports and technical director for Formula One. And just so you guys know, Ross Braun is one of the most important people in modern F one history. And I would encourage you to go and go and Google Ross Braun. But he was on a podcast, and I think it was Beyond the Grid. But this same question came up, and they were asking about the future of the power unit and the future of Formula One. And he was very 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 defensive when being asked these questions and he's absolutely adamant that some sort of fuel source will continue to be part of the f1 formula and i think what he was inferring was ultimately that it would potentially be a synthetic fuel source that would be coupled with an internal combustion engine and some form of hybrid uh, infrastructure and pieces like that so i think there's still a runway for synthetic fuels and i don't know that we're going to see an all-electric formula one series in the next 10 or maybe 12 years at the very very least so i think there's some runway there which leads and segues perfectly into the next question from greg at greg's place 512 and i'm going to take a stab at this question i'm going to get you to keep me honest here because i might get this one wrong so he says, huge fan of the pod, got hooked to F1 after going to the first Austin GP, which would have been back in 2012. Could you help explain how the hybrid battery recharge or whatever the flashing red light is works? Okay, so I'm going to take a stab at this. So at the core, because I love the technical side of the sport, but I'm going to try and simplify this and I'll probably get it totally wrong and you're going to be snickering at me. At the core of the power unit package is a 1.6 liter V6 internal combustion engine. Bolted to that is a turbocharger. So mm -hmm. it's a forced induction V6 engine. So that's not unconventional. And a lot of road cars have forced induction internal combustion engines. Where Formula One gets a little bit unique is they effectively have a double hybrid system. So they have a component called the MGU H, which bolts onto the turbo, and they have an MGU-K, which basically bolts onto the braking system. The MGU-H 
functions by extracting wasted heat from the exhaust system and pumps it back into the turbo. That way they help to eliminate turbo lag, which allows the turbo to spool faster when the car's taken off of the accelerator. So one of the really cool things about a turbo is when it spools up, it compresses air, it pumps more air into the internal combustion engine, which allows the car to pump more fuel in and produce more power. The challenge with turbos though, is that when you pat, when you get off of the throttle, when you get off of the accelerator, you're pumping less exhaust into the turbo itself. So one of the things that MGU-H does is it captures that energy. It can hold on to it or put it into a battery or if the car's taken off of the accelerator, it can pump that energy directly back into the turbo. So the turbo spooling full time. So there's almost no turbo lag. So when the car does go back on the throttle, that turbo is already spun up. It's already spooling and it's ready to go. The other thing that the car does is it has an MGU or K for kinetic, which basically captures wasted energy from the braking cycle. So heat that's generated under braking. And that power can be put into the MGU H or it can be put into the battery. And the battery stores about 160 horsepower worth of energy. So all in all, it's a very, very, very complex system. And there's a whole bunch of other technical pieces about the fact that the MGU-H and the MGU-K actually capture electricity on an AC current, but the battery is a DC current. You have to have a component to convert the two. But ultimately, just think about this. You have a 1.6 liter V6, you have a turbocharger, and you have a double hybrid system that helps capture energy that are from different parts of waste. So waste from the from the uh, exhaust and waste from braking. I think at a high level, does that capture it? Did I miss anything else or should I just post a chain bear video so everyone can get a better explanation? <laughs> well, the chain, the link to the chain bear video is probably the best, but I think, uh, yeah, you basically uh, nailed it there. I mean, it, it really is, uh, you know, fascinating that technology that uh, they are able to uh, do what they can do with these, uh, with these power units. And uh, let us not forget that uh, when uh, this was introduced in uh, 2014, we had uh, three engine suppliers at the time, Mercedes, Renault, and uh, and Ferrari. And then when Honda came back in in 2015, I mean, you know, they wanted to get back into it, but they were so far back on the development curve because, I mean, these, uh, these, um, you know, these engine uh, suppliers, I mean, they've been working and developing these uh, engines for a, like a significant period of time prior to... 2014 and Honda came into the game a, a little bit uh, later on and uh, you know unfortunately for for them and for McLaren who they were you know, supplying engines to at the time that uh, you know it's they were basically developing the the engine you know in situ right like actually in the season and it was just it, it was painful to watch and then of course we had all the uh, hysterics from from Fernando as well and uh, you know a lot of <laughs> And things like that. I mean, one that uh, specifically stands out was the, the the Russian Grand Prix. I can't remember. I what was it 2015 or 2016? You know, he his car basically failed on the formation lap, and then uh, you know his engineer said something. Well, can you restart the car? Can you can try something? He said, nope, I can't do anything. Why don't you come out here and try? You know, <laughs> really, it's just like it's one of those things that just kind of stuck in my head. But I guess that's Fernando being Fernando. Okay, next question. So here's one that I think is. A good one for you to take. This is from Harshvardhan, um, at Harshvardhan or Harshvardhan Yadav. Um, also, just a small request from people who, and I apologize, I'm sorry, I probably did not get that name right at all, so I sincerely apologize. Just a small request from people who just got an into F1 like me. Would it be possible if you guys could discuss some of the more classic races events throughout history? So this is, it's funny that you asked this question because one of the reasons that Mark and I actually started talking was 
probably a year ago, maybe more than a year ago, we actually started talking about standing up a separate podcast entirely that would yep. look back at historical events and seasons and races in Formula One. And I think, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think that's something that you and I have talked about doing during the off season to continue to create content or potentially do during the off season. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, there, there are so many great uh, moments and storylines to, to talk about. And I did the, a couple of the things like that uh, on my own a couple of years ago, specifically in the, the off season. Uh, one that I did, I mean, this was stuff I'd, I'd, I'd done in advance of like the, the, the Christmas break and New Year's when, you know, everybody like I don't do anything at that time except sit around and eat, <laughs> you know, which you tend to do at that time of year. But uh, one year, I, I think I did uh, did a special episode on the Williams FW15B or sorry, the FW14B, that real classic, uh, you know, dominating car from the, the early 90s. I did a, another one on Dan Gurney from uh, who's a very face, famous American uh, racing driver from the back in the 60s. And then in, in Formula One and then, of course, went on to do uh, so many other amazing things, uh, you know, on and off the track, uh, not just confined to uh, to Formula One. So I did do something like that. And and they're fun. You know, they're actually a, a lot of fun to do because, I mean, as, as much material as there is to talk about each and every week, not just, uh, you know, not just the races, but uh, just the, the, the normal news cycle in Formula One. There's always something uh, fun to talk about, but uh, certainly there's a, a lot of good ones. I mean, I think we had a mailbag question about a month or two ago. Somebody was asking for some recommendations. Recommendations, uh, you know, to, to go back and uh, some of our favorite uh, races. I mean, certainly Brazil 2008, uh, when when Lewis won his first championship, that was uh, dramatic. Uh, Abu Dhabi 2016 with the championship on the line between Lewis and uh, Nico Rosberg. That was another one. Um, British Grand Prix, I think 1992 was one. Yeah, uh, I think that was um, uh, Mansell Mania. That was uh, another one. Um, you know, I, I mean, some of these, and, and sometimes it's fun too to go back and and, and look at some of these. Like, uh, you know, go back if you've got access to, to F1 TV, or say you can find like a highlight pa- package on YouTube. You know, some of these races from the, the 90s and the 80s and the 70s and things like that. I mean, uh, it, it's pretty cool to be able to to, to watch some of those. So. Yeah, definitely. We, we, we've, we've talked about it. I think we will do it at some point. The only other two I would add as well, and I think there's so many great races, and we could break this out into seasons, into dynasties, into yep. ownership runs. But I would add, advise as well, check out the 2010 and 2011 Canadian Grand Prix. They were both great. Yep. The 2012 Abu Dhabi GP, the 2014 Bahrain GP, which we've talked about a lot, 2016 in Spain, 2018 in Britain, 2019 in Germany. That was crazy. And if you have the F1 TV app, most of these should be accessible for you. So you can spin these up if you want to learn a little bit more about F1 history. Another question. Don't forget also uh, Suzuka Japanese Grand Prix 1988. We talked about the Hamilton Rosberg. We talked about uh, Lewis and uh, Fernando, but an equally toxic uh, relationship uh, for for teammates uh, was uh, in McLaren in 88. Title contenders Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost, and it came to tears at Suzuka at the chicane just before uh, the the, the pit entrance there. So that's another one that uh, you should go and check out. And just before you go on, our good friend Victor Sum, weighing in on the live uh, stream here, he wants to know if we can be, he can be our, the, the show NASCAR insider. So I told him yes. I, d- I didn't want to say no and hurt Victor's feelings. So here, here we go. We got a NASCAR angle coming as well. It's Victor's fault that we even know each other. Years ago, he's like, hey, did you know my friend in Coquitlam is also doing a Formula One podcast? Like, I thought it was, we were the only ones in Canada. Like, threw my desk in the air. 
So, uh, so that was interesting. Yeah. So he was the one that, uh, created this, uh, very dysfunctional, I shouldn't say dysfunctional, semi-functional marriage. <laughs> let's just say it's all Victor's fault. Let's put it that way. Oh, absolutely. So this is one I'm super excited about. And I absolutely love this question. So this is from Pat at Pash the Pirate. It's from Grant. Hey guys, question for the next mailbag you guys do. And this is such a great question. What on earth happened to Williams? I'm new to F1 this season. I've been watching archive races on F1 TV Pro. Just finished the 2014 Bahrain Grand Prix, which we just talked about a couple minutes ago. And Bottas, Massa, and the Williams were fighting for the podium. How did Williams go from that to back markers so relatively quickly, especially with the Mercedes power unit? Thanks, guys. Love the pod. So thanks for all the support. Love it. I think to kind of speak to the Williams challenges you really have to go back to the 90s so back in the 80s and the 90s Williams was peak Williams they won the driver's title in 80 with Alan Jones they won in 82 with KK Rosberg which is Nico Rosberg's father they won in 87 with Nelson Piquet 92 with Nigel Mansell 93 with Alan Prost who replaced uh, Nigel Mansell when he went to Indy they won in 96 with Damon Hill and they won with 97 with JV they had a great power unit they had fantastic suspension, maybe suspension that was a little bit too advanced for Formula One and ultimately had to be reined in. They were really at, sorry, please. Yeah, that active uh, suspension that they had back in 91 or 92, I mean, that was ultimately uh, banned, but they weren't the only ones. They came out with it and Lotus came out with uh, with, with something similar at the time, but you, you're absolutely correct. I mean, they had not only a great power unit, but power units. They had yeah. Hondas, they had Renault. I mean, they, they were the engines that everybody wanted. To, you know, if you were going to be the best in Formula One in the 80s, you needed the Honda. In the 90s, it was the Renault. And uh, they had uh, a great uh, design team uh, that was headed up uh, by Patrick Head. I believe Adrian yeah. Newey got his uh, start uh, at Williams. I mean, he's now the, the, the head at Red Bull. I mean, uh, Newey's uh, record in Formula One is, uh, you know, is, is epic. I mean, he's uh, done so much. I mean, he got his start there. But, you know, the, the, the thing is, is I don't want to say that the, the decline was sharp or but it, it's kind of it, it was, but it was. After the the mid '90s, after Damon won his, and after Jacques won his world championship, and then they both went on to do other things, and uh, they moved to teams. Then you had Ralph Schumacher and JPM, who are good drivers in their own right, but I don't think that uh, they were necessarily you know world champion material. But then again, the cars at that point weren't necessarily. I mean, they had uh, BMW power at one point, but they you know they haven't. You know, they didn't win another race until what Maldonado won in Spain in what 2012, and that was a bit of a, a fluke. A bit of a, yeah, it was a fluke. I mean, um, you know, <laughs> it was a fluke that he actually was able to keep it on the track uh, for for as long. I mean, his, his legacy is uh, somewhat, uh, you know, a, a little bit, uh, you know, not the brightest. Uh, let, let let's put it that way. But I mean, they'd kind of been kind of in that best of the rest but when they fell off i mean that uh it, it was sharp and it was dramatic i mean uh it, it was all in that sort of that that uh the aftermath of 2016 i mean they, they had massa they had bottas i mean they, they were kind of like uh in the in the, the best of the rest and the constructors i mean they'd be good for a podium here and there i mean you know we, we've been a little bit uh you know critical and sometimes maybe a little bit too harsh on bottas but i mean you know i mean that that's a bit of a different discussion, but I mean, he's done a great job at uh, at Mercedes. But I think he did also a great job when he was at Williams as well. But the thing is, I think that when you know after 2016, I think when Patty Lowe went there, I think they just tried to get too radical on what they wanted to do with the car, and ultimately, I think it hurt them more than it helped them. And you know, once you know they they went that far off the track, and then uh, you know they had issues. I think uh, with with the funding and the finances. 
And it was just, they, they rapidly found themselves in a hole they just had no way of climbing themselves out of. And then after 43 years, the Williams family are out. And uh, they they sold their 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 team to Derelton Capital, who are now the, the the people in charge. And there's some signs that things are starting to turn around, but whether or not we're going to see a McLaren esque type uh, revival, yeah, I don't know. Too early to say. I mean, hopeful. I mean, I I have uh, like a real connection to the team. I t- I've tended to cheer for drivers more over the years, but I always have this connection to to Williams because of uh, Jacques, because of uh, Damon Hill, because of uh, Nigel Mansell. And, uh, you know, th- those were the guys I cheered for when I was a kid, when I was growing up. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it, it's sad to see. I have, I have very much the same emotional connection that you do for very much the, the same reasons. I just, I'm far less optimistic that they're going to be able to get out of this tailspin. And I think you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Like the, the decline happened quickly. So they win the driver's title in 97. They end up in 98 with a terrible mechachrome rebadged motor that was already a year old. And they go in this t- terrible tailspin for the better part of the next 18 years, where at best they're middle of the pack. And I yeah. think if you really have to summarize some of the things that proved problematic for this team is they continue to be a family owned business in a sport that ended up being dominated by corporate giants. So they were trying to play in the same pool as these big boys that had unlimited resources and to compound issues. One of the challenges for Frank and his technical directors was they absolutely insisted on developing everything in-house. So under Formula One regulations, there's a certain number of components that you can buy from other teams, and there's a certain number of components that you need to develop internally. They would try to develop everything internally except the power unit. And for a team that had minuscule or very, very few financial resources, they spread themselves very thin trying to build a component that they could go and buy off the shelf for less money and with better performance. And Gearbox was one of those, brakes would be one of those things. So they continued to try to develop components inside. And then I think just the philosophy of the business was very problematic. This was a team that has historically had a very powerful technical director who would not delegate or empower his department heads. So ultimately it was one person trying to dictate the development of the entire car. And historically from 98 to 2016, you had a car that was typically significantly behind the rest of the field, especially in aerodynamics. Now the listener asked a great question, like what happened in 2016? To me, 2016 was a fluke. You know what? I think history shows that a lot of these teams, Honda wasn't yet in the sport, Formula One wasn't ready, Renault wasn't ready, but Red Bull had a good package. Ultimately, they just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and they had the best power unit coming into the new period of regulation. So they were they were very fortunate in 2016. What happened in 2016 and 2017 and 2018, so 2014, 15, 16, is the rest of the field continued to evolve and develop their cars. And ultimately, Williams wasn't able to do that because they were focusing on the wrong thing. They weren't focusing on aero enough. They were focusing on developing components and pouring resources and developing things that they should have been buying from other teams. And then ultimately, you made a great point. Patty comes in. He's like, this car is fundamentally broken. So rather than taking the evolutionary steps that they should have taken in the preceding three or four years to develop the arrow, he basically had to blow the car up and start over. So it wasn't even kind of an evolutionary process. It was a revolutionary process. They had to catch up for five years of development overnight. Ultimately, they couldn't do that. And in 2019, they showed up late to winter testing. Patty leaves, the car's still broken. Like this is a team that is not in a good place and only time is going to help them. Now, 2022 is an ultimately a really great opportunity because 
everything resets again except the power unit. So they've already got the best power unit, but you're going to reset everything else. So if ever this team has an opportunity to catch up, it's really going to be in 2022. So I know that was a very long answer that we both shared, but I think it does a pretty good job of summarizing what's been happening with Williams the last decade or two. Yeah, well, the other thing is too uh, when they've had the um, you know the the, the misfortune of uh, losing their 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 power units, uh, it, it wasn't just a you know an isolated incident. I mean, uh, back in the late '80s, uh, you know they you know Honda yanked their engine supply and they ended up uh, running uh, Judd engines. And I can't remember what Judds were at the time if they were rebadged uh, Cosworths or something like that. And I think basically at the time uh, they uh, you know Honda was putting pressure to get Nigel Mansell out and they wanted the Japanese driver in there. But uh, Williams held fast and they end up, uh, you know, losing those. And then that uh, kind of bridged uh, the, the gap until they got the Renaults. And then they went on to that. But I mean, that, that's sort of been, you know, that's not unique to Formula One. I mean, uh, we, we see uh, teams change engine suppliers uh, fairly regularly. I mean, uh, we've seen McLaren go through. They're on their third engine supplier at the moment. I mean, 2015, they were running. Uh, well, they went for Mercedes, then they went to Honda, then went, went to Renault. And now they're back with uh, Mercedes again. So, I mean, four in the last uh, decade. But uh yeah, it's been a kind of a dramatic uh, <laughs> couple of decades uh, for, for Williams. Hey, one final break here, Mark, and then when we come back, uh, we'll uh, dive back into things. We're going a little bit long, but uh, we want to try and get to everything that uh, that uh, you guys uh, send to us. Uh, so uh, we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. So let's 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 keep going, but uh, let let's keep an eye on the time now. Uh, <laughs> you know, you said earlier that uh, you tend tend to be the guy that uh, drags things out, uh, but uh, you know, I, I never say no or I never try to slow you down. And once you get going, you you kind of uh, you kind of well, I wouldn't say drag me into it. I, I'm a willing participant. I'm, I'm I'm always eager to go down all the rabbit holes as well. So so what's up? What, okay. So here's another one for you. So this is from sure. Troy at Snelly T. Hey guys, love the pod. DTS newbie here, and I have a more technical question. I was hoping you could answer. And this is probably something we'll address in that podcast in the summer. But um, how were the overall car designs decided? For example, in 2017, all cars had that large shark fin for just the one year. Or next year, when the new car came, all the teams are given a specific template to follow. I've seen some non-official renderings of what the car will look like, and I'm wondering how that is known or if it is just a random guess. So I guess he's asking, like, how do we know what 2022 is going to look like? But the last couple of years have kind of been all over the place. I've seen some non-official renderings of what the car will look like, or is it just a random guess? Lastly, why don't we see any teams show up with a crazy design like the six-wheel Tyrrell from 1976? Seems like Haas could try something radical in hopes of competing. Yeah, well, they will have like uh, the, the the basic outlines, but uh, you know that that's why you'll see th teams uh, push the limits when it comes to their interpretation of uh, the, the the rules and regulations. I mean, this is a big discussion that we've been having over the past uh, couple of weeks with the bendy flexible wings, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's not as dramatic as adding like uh, you know uh, you know a, you know six wheels to the car, but I mean that's that that's the thing. I mean, there are the parameters which uh, they uh, you know they're they're bound to design the car for minimum widths and heights and uh, and uh, lengths and all and minimum weights or and, and maximum weights and all these well i guess there's no maximum but the the, the minimum stuff for everything like that but you know they're, they're always trying to find that uh, ad advantage and i mean they're, they're so detail oriented i mean you know putting the tape over the joints on the bodywork and polishing up the cars i mean because of a, you know a, you know a tenth of a second here or a hundredth of a second there all these things that add up so i mean they're always going to be trying to push the boundaries of uh, you know what is and what is not allowed and that's why period 
periodically you will have these technical directives that are issued by the FIA. I mean, there was this one on the bendy wings. I mean, a couple of years ago, the other one that immediately springs to mind was the, um, you know, the, the, the power units, you know, this whole this saga and scandal that uh, Ferrari got embroiled with that uh, ended up with that, uh, that rankling decision, that secret agreement that they had with the FIA at the end of 2019. So, yeah, I mean, th- again, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit uh, earlier on is we, we really don't know what the, the, these cars are going to look like uh, next year. I mean, and 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 the, the thing that I find fascinating, too, is that, um, you know, th- there hasn't really been anything any sort of like concepts that have kind of like leaked out there or speculations, you know, I mean, that, that's something that I find, uh, you know, really fascinating that all 10 of these teams that everything is so locked down so tight that, uh, you know, that, that, that nothing's getting out there. And basically the only idea of what we have to look at is like we were talking about a little bit earlier is those, those proof, uh, you know, these, these concept uh, designs that came out, when uh, Formula One made the announcement uh, three, four years ago, whatever it is now, that uh, you know this is what we're going to in 2022, and this is what we expect the cars to look like, and you know we know that it's going to have a front and rear, rear ring, we know it's going to have four wheels, <laughs> we know that inside is going to be a 1.5 uh, V6 uh, liter turbo hybrid uh, era, or sorry, um, uh, engine, and uh, you know that, that that's about it. But what it, you know how the cars are actually designed and what they end up looking to is just a, it's a big mystery and. Also, that's a uh, you know very similar sentiment uh, from uh, an email that I got from uh, Mike Boverhoff in, uh, in Michigan, and uh, you know very very uh, interesting. I mean, um, you know, there, there's a, diff- a second part to Mike's uh, uh, email here, just uh, regarding uh, some of the younger drivers. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it, it it is interesting. You know, with these uh, massive uh, rule changes uh, that that are coming for next year. The only thing I think I would add is we don't know what the cars are necessarily going to look like next year, but I think the one thing that we can predict, or at least that we know, is they're going to be very, very, very similar. Again, the the concept, the formula has been simplified, so the engineers and the designers will have far less creative license than they do today. And I think one of the things we've seen over the past couple of years is the the formula, the, the sporting regulations kind of give guide rails in terms of what you can and can't do but there's a lot of gray area that the engineers and the designers can work within and oftentimes these designers and engineers come to very different conclusions than other teams and sometimes it's not as obvious on tv but if you're in person and you see two or three different teams cars next to each other they're very very different sometimes they come to the same conclusions sometimes they just flagrantly steal but i think in 2022 they're trying to in an effort to reduce costs and increase they're taking that creative license away from the designers and the engineers, which is one of the things you need to do to reduce costs. It won't be as similar as Indy. So this is kind of the next question. So the segue is kind of perfect. But there is a question here about Indy. And this is from Hall and Oates. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. After looking at the comparison of the chassis in different areas, I have a bit of a radical idea. Similar to IndyCar having different aero packages for road courses and aero. So in Indy, so it's an awesome question. Indy is a very different sport in the sense that it takes place on ovals, it takes place on short ovals, and it takes place on road tracks. And for each one of those, they have very different aero kits. So depending on whether you're at Indy versus whether you are in Tampa on a street course, you will have a functionally different front wing and a functionally different 
rear wing. So they actually bolt on entirely different aero packages, different brake ducts, depending on where they're racing. Now, that said, these pieces are all identical. So the teams are all using the exact same aero parts. They're not designing them themselves. But I think from an F1 perspective, it's an interesting question. But I think if F1 is ultimately looking to reduce costs, having different aero configurations for different tracks is probably not something that they're looking to do. And likewise, at the same time, even though F1 is kind of a combination of these dedicated circuits and street courses, they're not as functionally different as a super speedway would be from a road course. So in Indy, there's a, a genuine necessity to have different aero packages to make these cars functional and the different types of tracks that they race at. It's not necessarily the same in Formula One. Yeah, it's a you know Formula One's a a little bit uh, different in that way. I mean, they'll they'll go to uh, different configurations uh, for higher, totally. low, higher low downforce, and then also the way that they're going to camber in the, uh, the 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 angle of the wheels or the toe in toe out, and then the amount of downforce on the front and rear wings and all those different things. And then also you take into account the uh, the, the the different tire uh, compounds uh, that uh, the Pirelli bring for each race that uh, are based on the you know the the uniqueness or the characteristics of uh, each each um, uh, track so it's either going to be the the, the harder uh, set of tires in the range because they got five different uh, tire compounds so it could be you know the harder or the softer or sometimes uh, in in the middle but you know i, th- I think i said it on the, uh, the the show the you know last week or the week before i kind of actually miss uh, you know when a couple of years ago and i know it got a little bit uh, ridiculous when you had like the super softs and the ultra softs and the hyper softs but uh, i guess it is uh, you know for 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 people a little bit easier you know you got a hard medium and soft and you have to use you know your your prime and your option tires you know the you have to use the hard you know one harder compound tire in the in the race itself but yeah i mean certainly uh, like you're saying i mean having these uh, different aero kits uh, certainly would not uh, fit in with this uh, new era of uh you know the, the, the cost cap and uh, you know keeping costs down i mean because uh, knowing formula one there would be fluid dynamics there would be wind tunnels and all this modeling going around and that would just uh, send the costs uh, going no, not vertical, but it would send them up uh, significantly for sure. So I've got a couple more. And so just a couple, I promise. Some of these, by the way, I think we'll defer to a future show. So we have some a couple of great questions about film and documentary from Luke Boyce and Carter Swan, which I think would be perfect to save for the future. Uh, this is a comment from Michael Stewart at Michael Stewart. This is less a question, more of a statement from a, a new fan, but fascinating. From this citizen in the U.S., what was and is appealing is that Formula One is the antithesis of NASCAR, which I am no fan. F1 is polished, has a pristine shine to it, and is associated with brands of luxury, Ferrari, Mercedes, Aston Martin, etc. But it also has deep storylines that are layered. The team framework of two drivers amongst a small number of teams creates drama and tension that plays well. This drama drew me in. I haven't even got into the racing part yet. Still, I'm learning the nuance of the rules and strategy. If they are able to play on these things, I think it will resonate with a larger U.S. audience. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's a, a great point. You know, you know, my my uh, my good friend Jorge. I mean, he's Mister Mister Soccer. I, I mean, he's just uh, absolutely fanatical about it. And uh, we were, I was talking to him just uh, last week, and uh, you know, he's uh, you know into into DTS as well. And he's just like this. The sport is fascinating. And I'm just like you know, dude. I never thought I'd heard you uh, heard you say that. And of course, you know, he's originally from Mexico City, and now you know he's uh, well. I mean, he knew who Checo Perez was of, of you know before. Uh, I mean, he's not uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, far removed from uh, from Formula One, but uh, he was just uh, he's just amazed at just uh, 
the, the, the whole production of uh, Drive to Survive and just, uh, you know, all the different uh, nuances and twists and turns to, uh, you know, watching Formula One. I said, OK, well, you know, getting into DTS is one thing. What, what about actually uh, wa- watching some races now, my friend? So we'll, we'll see whether or not uh, <laughs> he, he makes the next step or if, uh, you know, he disappoints. That- the next question, and it's really less of a question, but more of an ongoing conversation that Joe and I have been having. But Joe Santucci has some questions about tire management, tires in general. I think this is something that I want to save for the next time we connect with Tim Haraney, because I think he could probably do a really good job of yeah. talking about tires in a way that we can't simply because he has experience driving open wheel racing cars. But I yeah. think the, the one comment for our listeners is you hear all sorts of different things about tires. I think if you ever hear reference to a soft compound tire, the, the reference is really to the fact that a soft compound tire is stickier, but typically will last far, far fewer laps than a harder compound tire, which will be less sticky. The challenge is whether it's a hard compound tire, a medium compound tire, or a soft compound tire, the tires need to be hot to activate the grip. And if they're not hot, they're not going to be grippy regardless. So tire management is all about how long can I manage this tire how long can I keep this tire useful? How long can I keep the grip? Because if I don't manage my tires well and I burn through the the compound that is there, it means I have to pit unnecessarily or I lose grip. So we'll talk about some of these, but I think yeah. Tim might be a really good person to talk to us about tire management, right? Yeah, absolutely. But one thing I, I will add to that is, uh, you know, when it comes to the softer compounds, they're easier to bring up to uh, that uh, the, that sweet spot for the uh, you know the optimum uh, operating temperature, and then you know compared to the, uh, the the medium and the harder compound, and that's why, especially when you get to some of these races where it's cooler, where the where the weather's not so good, you know, it just takes that much more to you know, to generate that uh, you know that that energy and generate the heat into the tire uh, before you know, especially those harder compound tires to get it to, to the point where it's you know nice and hard and you know sticky and grippy in its own right. I mean, uh, of course, you know the, the softer tires are also uh, slow or faster, pardon me, because that's what if, if you uh, see the, the, the Sky Sports uh, feed, you know, they'll always put in you know, whatever they think it is, you know, that, uh, you know, you'll have your soft tire and then I'll say, uh, you know, your medium tire will be plus point six seconds per lap slower and then the the hard compound might be plus 1.1 uh, laps slower per lap. But the of course, the harder it is theoretically the longer you can run so you know you should be able to go further into the race but i mean we, we've seen at times uh, that uh, that the cars uh, depending on the track of the weather that sometimes you know what you think might be logical doesn't actually work out to, to, to be the way that you think and then sometimes you think that the soft tires might be the way to go and it turns out actually the hard is so it's uh, it's just one of those things but i agree tim would be the guy to talk to and we'll have to uh, connect with him and get him back on because uh he could uh, enlighten all of us, I'm sure. One of the things you've probably seen when these cars are going in for pit stops is the fact that the tires are typically wrapped in blankets. Those are electric tire warmers. They're designed to start injecting heat into the tires before they're even put on the car to help get them up to that optimal operating temperature that you spoke to. And I think the only other thing to speak to as well is that if the sport wanted, and we've been there before, if the sport wanted, Pirelli could design some general compound tire that could run an entire race. The fact that we have a pit stop is, is in a sense, it's artificial. It's designed to add a little bit of excitement and, tr- and intrigue and inject a little bit more strategy into the sport. But ultimately, I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the current regulation calls for one tire change per race and you have to run two separate compounds on race day. So you can't switch from a soft to a soft. You'd have to go soft to medium or hard to medium or hard to soft. 
Yeah, which is, uh, you know, sometimes uh, it's referred to the prime and the option tire as well. So exactly. You, you hear that uh, thrown out as well. That's all I got from Twitter. So there's some other great Twitter questions, but I'm going to save them. So if you didn't hear your question and I did commit to you on Twitter, I'm going to put these aside and I promise you will answer them in an upcoming show. But that is it for Twitter tonight. Okay, I, I got one more, and uh, that was that uh, one email that, uh, that I was just uh, talking about from uh, Mike Boverhoff in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, he says, hi, guys. Thanks for the work that uh, you guys do with the podcast. It's really helped me understand the sport as uh, Gen DTS. I have a nagging thought about uh, Danny Ricardo. He seems to be the right driver at the wrong time. He got to Red Bull after the change to hybrid motors. In a different time, he probably has the talent to be an F1 champion. Maybe he gets uh, there, but uh, he is running out of time. Um, you know, that that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. You know, I mean, uh, I, I think that first uh, season of uh, DTS was uh, pretty interesting because it kind of uh, detailed and documented uh, that, uh, you know, his whole switch uh, to Renault. Because uh, when that happened in 2018, I was on holiday. I was uh, sitting outside uh, the, the hotel and I was just uh, sitting there scrolling through. Now, th this is pre-pandemic, so this is pre-doom scrolling on social media before that was a thing. So it was just uh, scrolling back in the day. And then, um, you know, I happened to see Danny's, uh, I can't remember if he put it on Instagram or Twitter. I mean, it was probably both, but, you know, he... Uh, it, it was uh, right in the start of the summer break there because going into Hungary that year, he was basically, uh, you know, they were saying that, yeah, the, the contract, uh, you know, a new contract with uh, with Red Bull is basically a done deal. We just have to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and it's a, a basically a done done thing. And, uh, you know, like everyone else, I was probably not the only one that was shocked that he announced that he was going to, you know, basically take a, at best, a lateral move to, to, to Renault and, uh, you know, <laughs> more likely a, a step backwards. And, you know, that only lasted uh, two seasons. Although, you know, all credit to him, he managed to get on the podium a couple of times uh, last year. And uh, I, th I think going to McLaren is, uh, you know, I, I think it's a step in the right uh, direction. But I think somebody else had also sent uh, this email or sent, um, you know, maybe had uh, sent a tweet about this uh, too, uh, just uh, about the, you know, the, the basically the same thing that he's maybe running out of time. I mean, he's in early 30s now. And I, I don't want to say that the clock is ticking, but certainly you know, kind of has to make you wonder. I, I think that uh, he has the the, the, the the talent to do it, but not necessarily as he had the, the, the car to do it at the right time. And whether or not he ultimately gets there, that's that's a great question. I don't know. My thought on this is I'm going to steal this from another listener. Again, my good friend, Dead Randy uh, on Twitter, but he made a great comment the other day about the fact that Ricardo's transition to Renault was a little bit easier because he was going from a Renault power unit to a Renault power unit. In this case, he's going from a Renault package and a Renault power unit to an entirely new chassis and a new power unit. I, I'm still confident he's going to be able to turn the season around. I just, my, my frustration with Daniel Ricardo is less even about Daniel Ricardo, but it stems back to Red Bull. My sense is, and I've grown increasingly frustrated with Helmut Marco and Christian Horner over the past couple of years mm -hmm. because they've clearly demonstrated an inability to nurture and to develop young drivers. And we've seen even the last week, the treatment of Yuki, we've seen the treatment of Alex Albon and Alexander Gasly, the fact that they had Carlos Sainz and they let him go. They don't seem to be great at nurturing young drivers. And they had the optimal driver pairing. Imagine a driver pairing right now of Max Verstappen and Daniel Ricciardo, and you are absolutely in contention for a constructor's title. And they had that, but they couldn't manage the relationship between those two drivers. And I don't yep. doubt for a minute Daniel Ricciardo left because he didn't feel that he was effectively supported in that in that organization back in 2018 and that's why he left for Renault and I think he's spoken as much about that in the preceding few years so my frustration is Daniel Ricciardo should still be with Red Bull and Red Bull should be better for it 
Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I will not dispute that, uh, you know, in, in, in any way. I think you nailed it. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think that, uh, you know, Checo Perez is, you know, that sort of similar driver, whether or not he can deliver the goods the way that uh, Danny Rick did is, uh, you know, that that's the $64,000 question. I think that, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to to look into it, but I think that story was out there, you know, this week that uh, they're, they're not going to talk contracts with uh, Checo before the summer break. So, you know, is that ominous? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but uh, certainly, I mean, each and every time he gets into that Red Bull, he's uh, he's absolutely auditioning for, for next year. But again, you know, I, I think that uh, you nail it when you say that uh, they're, they're not great at nurturing younger drivers. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, Checo has been saying some pretty good things about uh, Marco saying he's, he's pretty, you know, he's pretty upfront. He's supportive. You know, he's telling him what, uh, what, what he needs to hear, not necessarily what he wants Marco mm-hmm. to tell him and sugarcoat it. You know, that's, that, that's fine. But, um, you know, th- th- they need to be patient i think on uh, you know on one regards when it when it comes to either developing a young driver i mean let's let's face it i mean they kind of i don't want to say fluked when it came to max i think they knew what they had in a commodity totally. it's just whether or not would he um would he be able to live up to the the, the potential that uh, that he had but you know certainly when it came to gasly i think they pulled the pin on him a little bit uh, too soon and then the same with with uh, with alex albon it's just like you know if you're going to give these young drivers the you know the, the the seat you know it's either you leave them in that development team at alpha tower or toro rosso and let, let them develop there i mean gasly i think that since he's gone back to toro rosso or alpha tower you know i'm starting to get mixed up here is um is, um, you know, they, they just haven't had that time to develop. And then uh, there's, um, you know, there's a comment here on the YouTube uh, feed from uh, Tasimba checking in from uh, South Africa, uh, South Africa, pardon me. He says, but if not Checo, then who? Yeah, great point. I mean, if you can't get it done with one of your own prospects and then you've got a journeyman, uh, you know, guy that's been in the sport for over a decade and has been a pretty handy driver everywhere he's been. I mean, he won his first Grand Prix last year. Then who are you going to, you know, who are you going to replace him with? And then moreover, who's going to want to go there? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's totally, to, you know, it's going to be one of those places. It's like, uh, you know, you get that number two seat at, uh, at Red Bull. It's almost like it's cursed or it's where careers go to die. So I totally agree. And I just want to add for context, because I know our listeners enjoy this. Mm-hmm. In his time with Red Bull, Daniel Ricciardo had 27 podiums and seven race wins. He finished third in the Drivers' Championship in 2014 and third in 2016. He he clearly has the credentials. He was familiar with the team. Like it's yeah. to me, it's just such a shocking, unfortunate turn of events that they weren't able to put him in a state of mind where he felt comfortable with his future and he felt comfortable knowing that that team had his best interests in mind. And again, we've talked and I've heard other podcasts and other analysts speak to something of a a toxic, uncertain culture within that team. You have a guy that's run seven races with you and has taken almost 30 podiums and finished third in the driver's championship twice, and you let him go. You can't convince him to stay. The whole circle that we've seen with Sergio and Alex and and with Gasly, that was all a downstream knock-on effect of the fact that you couldn't keep Daniel Ricciardo happy. And I think that's just an absolute shame and a pox on that team. But I think that's being dramatic, and I know we've got to wrap it up. (laughs) <laughs> no, I think uh, nicely done. Anyway, so yeah, that's all I got as well. So, um, you know, if you're good, I'm good. Uh, we had uh, a message here from my brother. Why do you guys suck? But uh, we'll leave that to another show. And then I'm going to have to have it. No, he didn't send that. Uh, but uh, anyways, <laughs> you know, a bad joke to finish the show. Why not? Right. 
have to have to have a little bit of sense of humor. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for for all the awesome tweets and emails. We really appreciate it. As we say, I mean, being able to interact with uh, you guys uh, online or offline is uh, is awesome. And uh, you know, I've seen uh, quite a few people checking in on the live stream. So uh, you know, we'll we'll try and do this uh, again on non race weeks, or or maybe we'll make this a, a regular thing. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but certainly, it's uh, kind of cool to be able to interact uh, real time. Anyways, uh, of course, uh, we're going to be back in a couple of days with the regular weekly show. We're going to preview the uh, Azerbaijan Grand Prix that's going to go at the Baku City Circuit this week. So we're back to racing, which is always exciting. And until then, if you want to get in touch, of course, Twitter's the best way uh, to do so at Scuderia F1 Pod or via email at Scuderia F1 Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. On behalf of myself and Mark Hamilton, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. And we'll talk to you guys again in a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks, a couple of days. Bye for now.